The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, guys. Well, we, we've already had some fun already with the guest. Guys, we are really happy to have this guest come on. This lady has been around the block a time or two, and I don't know how I can give an introduction here, because if you guys are into true crime, mm-hmm. then you guys would know the name Sandra London, and that is our guest on Conspiracy Normal. And I don't want to waste too much time on introduction because I want to get into the to the nitty gritty. But uh, Sandra, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. It's for really on. awesome to have you here with us. Adam, I thank you for inviting me, and it was wonderful to uh, make the acquaintance of Sirfiel as well. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. absolutely. He's the guy that keeps me on my toes here. So, but uh, it was my idea, yeah, to get you on Conspiracy Normal. You know, we're going to talk primarily about your book, Good Little Soldiers, that I believe that came out. Was it 2017, Sandra, that that was published? Or no, was you're it... not supposed to put me on the spot for dates and numbers. And that's the one. Yeah. Okay. okay. I'm walking out. That's it. <laughs> we can find it. You people. <laughs> we can always find it. It says 2016. Uh, 2016. Okay. So I was really close. And I don't even know. So there you go. <laughs> I've got the book. I could go read it. Yeah, we're going to talk primarily about that, but uh, I think we really just want an introduction for people that don't know you and don't know your life path, your journey of some of the things that you've done, and then we can get into that latest book. Yeah, like because what I was saying before uh, we started recording is that you're most well known for your research around serial killers and criminality, but you seem to have this general interest in people who would be considered outsiders uh, of society, whether that's artists and poets, vampires, or people who claim to be victims of mind control. So what, uh, what draws you to these type of, of people and their stories? I'll have to quote uh, my colleague, Colin Wilson, who is also my, I should say, my mentor. And uh, he had said that uh, from the study of crime, and he really is the great godfather of true crime. And he said that uh, he studied murder and and, uh, uh, violent crime because that is humanity stained along the edges as if you were going to put it under a microscope and really ch- check out its anatomy and its uh, delineation. Um, 
people that have done things that other people haven't done will bring forth more information about human potential than going over and over what the mainstream people all agree is the way to go. So there's information out there. If you don't want to go there, you don't want to be a criminal, but you want to know what did they learn from what they did. So maybe uh, you could find out if you approach uh, these dangerous and frightening people uh, in a way with respect and consideration, mutual respect, and you might be able to get some good stories out of it. Who knows? So you you describe them as uh, shamans unaware, right? And and it's kind of what you're saying is what a shaman does. They go to the other side or to where most people don't tread, and they bring back this information. Exactly. Golly, you're quoting something from ancient history. When did I write that? Back like nineteen. It's it's on your website, and it's very it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, and this uh, journalist um, Achenbach, Joel Achenbach famous journalist with the Washington Post. I wrote it when he was interviewing me and he was astonished. He's like, how long did it take you to write that? And I'm like, uh, 20, 25 minutes. And he was shocked, you know, he's like, what, what, you know, like I got, I'm doing something that he doesn't have a key to. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, but back to the idea I was trying to express there I said that these people are splashing messages on blood on the wall, and it's our job to read those messages and interpret it, the message of this enchored uh, violence that uh, it's beyond what words can tell. When people cannot communicate, that's when the violence happens, but there's still information in it. But let's talk about the feedback of that information to the body politic. It helps us. Yeah. I don't know. Some uh, of these personalities are so badly damaged, there's no such thing as rehabilitation or anything. Um, So you can't really uh, judge it by that. But you can judge it by if it helps us to learn some of the things that I've been able to get them to reveal to me. And I think so, because these are things that are kept secret. My co-author, Diane Fitzpatrick, in Good Little Soldiers, uh, I've I've known her now for 15 years, and we still talk even after the book was finished and things. And uh, I, I ask her, you know, questions, and she'll talk for an hour and a half, and I'll figure out what she's saying. But, uh, one ancient little comment she wound up one of her lectures with was, uh, these things are not secret because people are trying to keep them secret. They're secret because people don't want to know. So that plays on another part of human nature, uh, that we turn away from things that are ugly and, and scary. We don't want to know. Do you think that's changing? I mean, true crime just keeps getting bigger. And there's like always new books, shows, podcasts, movies. Yeah, it's bigger well, than it ever look, has been. there's more of everything. Who knew you could go on and on about cooking? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
That's so true. let me just put that in context. It's, it's just media overload. Hour cycle with multiple outlets. And what is more thrilling than life and death? Ask Shakespeare. Yeah. He, he never left the stage unless it was littered with corpses, honey. And the crowd loved it. Down through the ages, he can't get enough. Okay. Life and death is of urgent importance. And and to think otherwise is to be hypocritical. Sandra, what was it that started you? Um, I know that um, you went to high school with uh, with Schaefer. It, well, was you're that what started? Because I didn't. Well, yeah, that's Schaefer went to the Catholic school. I went okay. to the public school. So yeah. when he showed up at a dance at my school, he was a handsome stranger, right? not one of the kids i grew up going to school with okay yeah the way the wikipedia and wikipedia is sometimes wrong i don't bother uh, with it yeah, I had to it, go it to says you went to the same hot school point, but yeah they had put on there that i was a suspect in multiple murders oh wow and i had to jump in and get involved and it was an ordeal and uh they did something like a lock it down or something like that where after that i just don't bother with it yeah yeah understandable there are so many lies and misconceptions uh, circulating about me that I find in my in my own uh, use of my own energies in real time, it's not profitable for me to uh, go in and try to rectify every misconception. Sure. Uh, I find that it's better for me to just tell a better story and uh, come with something new that they haven't heard. And uh, instead of going back and say, oh, no, that's someone's lying about me again, you know, people lie about me. So you met Schaefer as a teenager when you both were teenagers. Yeah. Yes, sir. At a, a high school dance um, at my school, both of us had dates, but uh, uh, it was really the proverbial eyes connecting from across a crowded room. He was very handsome. He was tall tanned had blue eyes blonde hair pretty curly straight teeth uh athletic he uh was an outdoorsman and uh he was very socially adept his last girlfriend was a uh, debutante and so he was her escort and all that so uh, he was no thug it was a very uh sophisticated uh young man and um so uh, we just kept eyeing each other. I'm over there at the um, punch bowl, and he came up and chatted me up, and I told him my name. I didn't give him my number or anything. I just told him my name. Well, after that, he went home. He went through the phone book, and he looked up every family by that name and called them and asked for me hmm. until he found me. And I like to say that's the first time I was uh, hunted by a serial killer, but not the last. <laughs> that so, was Schaefer, all right. So I guess that he moved away, and then once he had committed all his crimes, he had been caught, then I guess that you had reestablished contact with him? So Schaefer and I got along okay. We dated for a year. There came a, a time where our relationship deteriorated because instead of going out and having fun, which is what I wanted, he wanted to cry and complain about his uh, his issues. And I'm not a therapist, and uh, I'm a kid. 
And right. uh, I don't I don't want to go out on a Friday night and have to sit there and listen to and uh, he became unattractive to me at that point. And so at the same time, I had a really good friend, a guy across the street, and he and his buddies decided they didn't like John and that they wanted me to get a new boyfriend. And they went and recruited Raymond from college upstate and brought him down and said, look, meet Raymond. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was cute. And that was it for John. And so uh, John did not take that really well. He threatened me. And his words were, I'm going to get you back. Mm. Well, one would think he meant, uh, I'll be your boyfriend again. But when you realize those words are also used for revenge, it's sinister. Right. And he did tell me that he was lurking outside and watching me and my new boyfriend when we came home and we sit outside and kiss and stuff. He did tell me he was out there watching. So So you got some kind of hint there that something was, was off with him. He I rejected him. Mm-hmm. And he never got over me. So uh, then I went on with my life, right? And everything. And all this stuff happened, okay? Which I don't think we need to go into. And then came 1988. And uh, people who know about business know that our economy crashed and through no fault of my own. Uh, I crashed with it. I couldn't uh, get a gig. I would present my uh, technical writing pitch. I always got the gig. All of a sudden, I couldn't get any gigs. And I'll try to figure out what am I doing wrong? As I was a, a successful technical writer, right? But there were all these low ballers who hit the market in 88. So anyway, I'm going along. Then what happened? They executed Ted Bundy. At that time, everybody started yelling, Ted Bundy and serial killer. And I'm like, what? And so I read the book by Ann Rule, and I said, I can write better than that. And the serial killer that I knew, I knew him much, much, much more than she did. Mm-hmm. And sure. so mm-hmm. why don't I see if I can uh, write about that and uh, let's start a whole new thing and, and uh, see what's there. I evidently I looked at the TV guide. Evidently, people want to know about murder. If you read the TV guide and count the words. OK, killer, murder, kills, you know, yeah. pretty much. It's <laughs> entertainment. Up. All the air in the room, you know, really. So America's calling and saying they want to know about this. And I say, well, I know about it. And this uh, technical writing thing ain't going so good for me. So let's just see. Um, I knew that John had threatened the girl two doors away from him. He threatened her to me. And so when I got ready to think about contacting him, I called law enforcement locally. And I said, I knew him. I'm thinking about contacting him. And I want to find out, did he kill that girl two doors down? And they said, no. Well, that was wrong. He did. But I knew her as Lee Hainline. 
and she had remarried, so her name was Libonides when she went missing and was connected to Schaefer. So when I asked them, did he kill Lee Hainline, they said no. Okay. So I wow. said, well, okay, he didn't kill her, so let's just see what's going on. And I wrote to him on February 7th, 1989, and I said, do you remember me? And how would you like to collaborate on writing a book about your life and crimes? And he wrote back, I remember you. I, how could I never ever forget you? My love for you burned with a cold blue flame. And I love you still, right? Wow. <laughs> so there it went. That's how it started. So you had a real, real inside view there and started, started writing. To Schaefer, basically because I knew him, and not for any really uh, other reason. But it turns out that his peculiar uh, bent and his case uh, affected my career from then on, because he was convicted based on his writings. Right. John, John was a writer. He went to call, he graduated college, uh, criminal justice and creative writing. And he had a pile of writing he had done, and that was brought into court and used to convict him. And so in the course of our uh, correspondence, I said, look, uh, do you still write those stories? And the answer was like, boy, do I. So from then on, he regaled me with these uh, writings. And they were assaultive. He was committing a, a, a covert uh, assault, sexual assault on me by sending me these things. Mm. I flattered him and challenged him and said, well, they're not realistic enough. <laughs> um, oh, God. <laughs> if only I knew what that would do. But... Uh, I just worked with him and uh, kept him going, kept the uh, words flowing. And uh, he just incriminated himself all over the place, thinking that he was impressing me uh, with his expertise in fiction writing. Mm -hmm. So then, but he, he had this double mind where he had two stories he wanted to go with at the same time. He wanted to be both. A framed ex-cop with a lively imagination who's a really good writer and, quote-unquote, many times quoting, the greatest killer of women in this century. Okay. The, the greatest killer, you know, this would how he would characterize himself, right? But uh, I had to go along with him when he was in that mode and then go along with him when he was in the other mode as if this was just normal, right? Right. But then it came to the point after I spent about two years with him that I had a meeting with him and I said, it's a bunch of bullshit. You're not a serial killer. You're just jerking me around. And uh, I'm out of here, dude, you know. This is not fun for me. I don't like to read all those nasty stories you write. I mean, uh, it's just a waste of my time. After that, he redoubled his efforts to convince me in writing that he was a real serial killer. Then when I started to say, okay, you're a real serial killer, then he sued me for calling him a serial killer. 
And when I replied to the lawsuit, I attached 500 pages of handwritten correspondence for the judge to evaluate. And uh, naturally, the judge threw the case out. Mm -hmm. I used that same 500-page attachment to send to Mike uh, Newton, who he sued, Colin Wilson, whom he sued, Ron Holmes, whom he sued. They all got the 500 pages, and they all filed them with their courts. And in one court uh, said uh, Schaefer was judgment-proof. And another one said that uh, the uh, ample evidence in your own words that you are a serial killer. Yeah. So that you see, he thought he was tricking me. Mm -hmm. He thought he was manipulating me. Right. So uh, I had to reach the point where I would say, all this is, you know what? I don't like it, but you know what it is? It's more data. Right. So don't stop him. Just hang right in there and continue to gather the data. And then some of those, did some of those end up in, in killer fiction? Yes. Okay. Now, Killer Fiction is the first book I came out. And I published it myself under my uh, imprimatur, Media Queen, in 1989, right away. And it got had, uh, front page headlines in the Palm Beach Post and the uh, Stewart News right you know the front page banner headlines so i was like whoa well i guess i'm off to a good start here uh, and that was killer fiction then um um feral house brought it out in 1996 a killer fiction and that was the the version that most people know well that was everything i had there so 20 years went by and uh, Adam Parfrey at the publisher would not release the copyright to me, although it went out of print. And then he died. And then I was able to get the copyright back. And so that was 2020. So when 2020 came, I went to uh, bring out second edition. I separated the material and I published one volume, Rogue Cop. Beyond Killer Fiction, Rogue Cop. And it's all of his fiction, some of which was included in the first edition of Killer Fiction. Others were not published until now. Now, the second volume is is uh, uh, Beyond Killer Fiction, Killer Fact. And that is a work in progress on my desk. Oh. And that will contain everything real. All the facts about Schaefer. Was some of the fiction, I mean, was the fiction more like um, a quasi-confession in a lot of ways? Sure it was. That's why yeah. it was used as evidence in court. Right. Yeah. I'm assuming that he did not win any of those lawsuits. Right. Yeah. Thrown out or, or right. gained some more useful comments for other lawsuits. There was a, a another book that was written about Schaefer uh, by Pat Kendrick, and he really got ragged over the calls by Schaefer was suing him, and he went for the okey doke. He bought lawyers, and it it cleaned him out, and his wife divorced him, and he and lost his job and everything else because of Schaefer suing him, and that's in his book. So where does Danny Rowling come in? Yeah. Well, that would be a, a little ways on. Mm -hmm. So there I am doing Schaefer. And here comes Bobby Lewis. Bobby Lewis is a, a killer who was uh, doing uh, on death row when he escaped from death row. 
And then when they brought him back, they put him on a tier uh, under the ground alone with Ted Bundy. They had Ted Bundy in one cell and Bobby Lewis in the cell next to him. So Bobby Lewis came to me and he said, why are you bothering Ms. Schaefer? He's disgusting. I got a lot better stories than he does. I escaped from death row and I was alone on death row with Ted Bundy. And I'm like, hmm, well, maybe. So I gave him all the rules that he had to obey about respecting me and, uh, you know, no no threats, no manipulation, no nasty talk, uh, no disrespect of any kind. Don't and you can't lie, or I, I don't I don't have time for this. So Bobby Lewis, I I wrote a screenplay of the story of his escape from death row called Redbone, which is named the gal he fell in love with out there. And I I still have that screenplay. So Bobby Lewis had presented himself to me as kind of the king of the prison. And he would brag in writing that uh, he could get guns, drugs, women, anything. Yeah. And I, I never really, because I guess I was too green, I didn't realize what that meant. That it meant he was hand in glove with the administration, that he was a stone snitch morning, noon, and night for his career was being a snitch. Right. Mm-hmm. Makes, that makes sense, yeah. Okay, and if I'd been around the couple of rodeos when I encountered Bobby, I would have recognized that immediately, but I had to learn it the hard way. So there was Bobby, and then here came Danny, and he got charged, and then once he got charged, they moved him to the, the big house there, Florida State Prison, and guess who they hooked him up with? Bobby Lewis. Gee, mm -hmm. I wonder why that was. Right. Okay. So they they set Bobby up with him. And Bobby writes to me and he says, I've got this boy and I'm going to turn him over to you. And he's very easy to influence. And, uh, you know, so there was the deal. And so Bobby Lewis showed Danny that uh, screenplay. And Danny was very impressed, and he said, whoever wrote this, I want them to write the story of my life. And so that's how Danny Rowling contacted me uh, by letter because of the Bobby Lewis connection. Okay? okay so I hope yeah. that clarifies that. Okay. And then you published a book with him as well, with Danny Rowling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I should say for the audience, he was known as the Gainesville Ripper. By right? some. A, yeah. By Mary Ryzak, who had a sweetheart deal for a book of the month, and she never left her seat up in New England. She never went to Florida. <laughs> she never went to Louisiana. She never interviewed anyone. And evidently, she didn't even review the case records because at the very first line of the first sentence of the first paragraph of her book, she starts right in by saying, Daniel Rowling. Okay. How many official documents did she have to overlook? to come up with calling him Daniel, which was never his name, not on his birth certificate, not on his military uh, papers, not on his divorce or marriage, not on his indictment, not yeah. on his verdict. That's going to be all government names, yeah. Is and what's always Danny. That's Mary Rysak. 
She's the one who called him the Gainesville Ripper. And she ain't right. And she had bullshit in that book like you never heard. She went in there and made up this crime he so-called committed while he was so-called on furlough from prison. Excuse me? Have any of you ever heard of anyone going on furlough from prison? No, it sounds like a... <laughs> That's in her book. No such thing. Oh, she, and she said that uh, he and his mother had a sexual relationship. It goes on to the extent that in the appendix to my book, The Making of a Serial Killer, uh, there's a whole chapter devoted to Danny Rowling's responses to all of the lies from Mary Isaac's book. And so what really you know, helps distinguish you from these other people investigating true crime and serial killers is that you got a real boots on the ground investigator type of thing going on. That's correct. But I have a different approach too. I'm, I don't strive to be a part of their cabal. I don't follow their uh, implicit guidelines. Okay. And uh, when they put me on the stand to, uh, to take away all of my assets, which they did because of writing this book, they uh, made inferences in their questions that I should have included interviews with the victims' families. And so so then that means your book has no value because you didn't do the things I thought you should have done in the book. Right. But no one's done what I've done. So there. Mm -hmm. And so that that puts you, you know, into publishing things either independently or with more like alternative press like Feral House. Yeah. After the uh, Feral House experience, I did have um, some contacts with publishers, and they always wanted to clip my wings, okay? And it was just not worth it. It's like, but, yeah. you don't understand what I'm doing here. But this was a time that, you know, especially with the infrastructure that Feral House had, that in independent books were doing very well on their own. They were not doing very well financially because Feral House never put out one advertisement, never put out one book tour, never spent one cent promoting books. See, so it was given to me that uh, you need to talk to Jane Pauley and you need to talk to Larry King and you need to talk to Geraldo, all these, uh, um, shall I say, cutouts from, you know, certain connections uh, that I needed to go on record with them because how was I going to promote my book otherwise? See, because there were no advertising. And so I'm like, okay, I'll do the appearances. And they were uh, hit jobs arranged that way, arranged to be hit jobs. So you were on like... Everything. You, yeah, yeah. And and you've got a lot of that documented on your on your YouTube channel. Yes, yes, some of it. Uh, after a while, I wasn't going to post the whole pieces. I just post a clip from it. But yes, I had appearances in uh, Europe, France, Germany, um, and uh, Australia, and um, a lot of local markets um, flew me in. Uh, for example, uh, Philadelphia and uh, Seattle, where I was treated very well. They were obviously not in on the uh, the call list, the Get Sandra movement, um, but uh, they treated me more like a regular person. 
and uh, had some really good uh, episodes with them. I was on court TV at least two dozen times um, in different cases, and my not just my own, but other cases. And uh, I worked for Current Affair, so I appeared in some of the pieces that I produced five. I produced five pieces for Current Affair exclusives. And uh, then, of course, you know, Errol Morris made a biopic yeah. about me, which was pretty distinguished coverage. Yeah, absolutely. I worked with Errol for five years on that. So that was pretty intense. I, uh, when I look back over all the things that I've been through, I have to say it was a good advantage to meet some exceptional people. That's true. Uh, Errol Morris would be number one. Okay. Colin Wilson, having Colin Wilson, you know, coach me and, and uh, you know, call me intercontinentally to help me with my writing and things like that. You know, those are the high points. Yeah, Colin Wilson yeah. is a big deal. That is quite the mentor. Yeah, I mean, big influence on me. I loved a lot of his stuff. Well, I'll just tell you what he did. I was writing this book, this uh, vampire's book, and it took me five years now writing the whole time. And then I started to go back to what I'd written five years earlier and read it. And I was like, what is this? I says, uh, do you really have anything to say? Or are you just going to go yah, yah, yah the whole time? And I'm like, I wanted it to be muscular and streamlined. I'm like, if you have something to say, just spit it out, girl. And so I start ripping out and ripping out and ripping out and ripping out. And then I looked and I said, what am I doing? I said, I keep this up. I'm not going to have a book. And so I said, there's something wrong here. I called it editosis. And that's when I reached out to Colin. And he said, how can I? He says, what if I read both versions, the, the original and where you ripped everything out and, and give you my opinion? I said, oh, that would be so great. And he did. And he wrote me back and he said, no, leave it the original. Don't take that stuff out. He says, people are not impatient. They want to know what you think. He says, you're the criminology. These mm -hmm. are your ideas and thoughts. And uh, and he says, put them in. And he says, you write so well, you're not going to go too far wrong in any case. So stop ripping it out. And he said, just publish it and go on to the next work when it gets like that sounds like good advice i'd probably come in handy for a lot of people out there you're perseverating at that point okay and it, it could have been very destructive but i just wanted to tell you give you a little insight to what colin wilson did for me off the record yeah that's very cool that you knew him uh you know just a really prolific writer and just in, wrote so much about so many subjects i've i think i've read like i don't know four maybe five or six of his books over the years. Yeah. Well, he got to where he was just sending me his books autographed. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah he was, he was, he was, the last thing he was else. really interested in was the pyramids and Atlantis. Yeah. I had that book actually. Yeah. 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 I talked to him about that while he was writing. I guess that would have been one of his last. Yeah. Um, probably like early two thousands, I think. And then today yeah. I was reminded that I got to meet Lou Smith, who's another legend, the, uh, the legendary um, investigator who has been involved in so many cases, and most uh, notably in the post I saw today, uh, Jean Benet. But I was with uh, Lou Smith on a case where Otis Toole confessed a double murder to me in person. Mm 
And uh, I said, you know, will you go before the judge and, and uh, follow up on that? He said he would. I gave it to the judge. Judge ordered to brought out there to Colorado, br- brought me out there to Colorado. And we had a hearing because uh, um, murders, Park Eastup had been convicted. So it was his case. And they wanted Tool to just stand up his confession. Well, it turns out he'd confessed to Lou Smith 10 years before. And they brought him in court, and I sat next to Lou Smith while they played the video of Tool confessing to Lou Smith. And they had Tool on the stand. And so the lawyer would stop and ask Tool to respond and stuff, and he was so mad, he was furious. He was one furious little serial killer because Colorado is a no-smoking state. And ever since they picked him up from Florida, he hadn't had a smoke. And that was just about the end of the road for him. And he said, I'm not doing a goddamn thing you want me to do unless you give me a damn smoke. And he sat up on the stand and he called uh, the, the the judge a slut. And he wouldn't cooperate. He said, I don't care what I told Lou Smith. I was lying. I was making it up. And he just sat there and uh, I sympathized with him so much. And I thought it was so stupid. Because he, he was just there to clear up Parky Steps' record. He wasn't even going to be charged. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And the state could have had that for a cigarette. I think it's important to point out there how how your work, you know, helped um, some of these cases against some of these killers, right? Like, oh, not... I don't think anyone really realizes that I've helped close sixteen homicides. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. I don't think anyone really realizes that because I am not like these other people who like to uh, puff themselves up and brag and half the times lie about themselves you know i just it's embarrassing and right. i think my work should speak for itself and though and you the, think it's important to you not i'm not not promoting myself right but getting back to the desk i still have unfinished work i'm sitting here on top of a pile of yeah. secrets that the world needs to know so if people are not aware of me because i don't uh, do self-promotion that's going to have to be okay because I think the greater uh, use of my time is to get back to my pile of unfinished work and get it out there. Well, and though you think it's important to, you know, get these stories and understand these people, you know, as that aspect of the dark side of humanity, you still think that they should be accountable for their crimes. Oh yes, of course. Here's something else so no one realizes. Everyone thinks uh, because this uh, Catherine Ramsland put out her screed about Sandra London killer grouping, everybody jumped right for that. Okay, because it's idiots kind of uh, expression, and because uh, she. Uh, was in competition with me for the sources during writing my vampire book and her vampire book at the same time. So it's stupid. All right. It's just stupid. But, uh, you know, that's been laid on me. And um, all I can do is, like I said, get, make a better story. 
what I do in confronting these people is to give them the respect uh, of a, a human dialogue, opportunity to get the truth out, whatever their truth may be. I will not stand for manipulation. I will not stand for insults uh, or double dealing or lying. And I have dealt with actual innocence and it tore me up. It broke me. Uh, I, I didn't want to take on that kind of a case. And he, he, Joe O'Dell up in Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, kind of kind of weaseled his way into my attention, saying, okay, well, we won't talk about my case. I'll just write a book about you, which he did. And uh, so I, 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 you know, corresponded with him for five years, and then they killed him, and he was innocent. He had actual innocence. And it, it hurt me so bad I always take time off if someone I know is being executed. I'm just I'm alone and quiet and respectful for what's going on. Uh, so I got through that day, but I went to the Quaker meeting, and one of the Quakers said I would. I heard about Joe Odell, and I thought about Sandra, and it was, I felt like somebody kicked me in my solar plexus. I literally doubled over, and I burst into tears. And the tears didn't stop flowing for six months. Mm. Because he was innocent. And they knew it. What was he accused of? I'm not Murder. familiar with him. Yeah, it's 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 just a long, complicated case. There was uh, bad blood because he had shot a bailiff and more or less got away with it in their view. So he had uh, something to pay for in the past. I was adjudicated and everything, but they didn't like it. Yeah. That's all I can tell you about, you know, why someone would do that to a person. But uh, at any rate, so uh, I would not want to deal with uh, actual innocence simply because it's too much stress uh, on my instrument. Yeah. Okay, I can't be uh, have tears falling down my face for six months. You know, I have to go to the grocery store without them saying, are you all right? You know, yeah, it's understandable. Totally. So now Danny Rowling was not uh, innocent. Right. See? So I was able to uh, somehow it's very complex. And I'm sure that most people would not be able to handle it, period. But I found a way to handle it. Danny Rowling was guilty. Danny Rowling had a death wish. Danny Rowling insisted that I cooperate with the state's attorney's office to ensure that he be executed for his crimes. Do mm. you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Who's yeah. been there? Who's had that story to tell? Who's had that set of circumstances to deal with? Yeah, he wanted to die. Yeah, And trying to use you, yeah. Right. He did. Mm -hmm. What do you mean trying? Right. He did. I did. I cooperated. Yeah. It's what Danny insisted on. Yep. That's what he wanted. He didn't want it. He demanded it. Yep. So to dismiss everything that I've done by saying, 
seems like Hillary Rainfing is so stupid. And to insist that uh, somehow I like crime, I like criminals. No, I'm a writer. I like mm-hmm. stories. I like to write. Okay, I'm a creative artist. I like art. I like music. I was a songwriter for many years before I took up true crime. I was 42 years old before I started true crime. Right. Yep. Okay. So it's hardly a matter of me being fascinated with murder. Mm-hmm. Those yeah, are canards. You're a multidimensional person. By rivals and other interested parties who sought to squelch my voice so that I would not be believed if I were to speak up about evidence I have about crimes. I Let's, hope that explains it. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. It does. That's going to tie into the uh, talking about this uh, latest book of yours. Yeah. Good Little Soldiers. Book is uh, Sicarious. Good Little Soldiers. Good Little Soldiers is not the latest. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got this book Danny Rowling wrote for me, but devils got in between and took it away from me and then died. And so the book was orphaned and it's been orphaned for 20 years. Oh, wow. Finally got it back and I published it. That's my latest. It's Death Row Fiction by Danny Rowling, a novel called Sicarious. That uh, 2022. Okay, I just brought that book out. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I just got that book on out there, and it's uh, called Death Row Fiction. Which again, this is a uh, genre that I have invented. No one else has done what I've done. So, Good Little Soldiers is the next. Is the next. Good Little Soldiers. I think that was 2013, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah, like, I think six, somewhere <coughs> around there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, good little soldiers. Here's how that story goes. We start with Carrie Thornley. Carrie Thornley was Lee Harvey Oswald's commie pal in the Marines. And Carrie Thornley wrote a book about Oswald before Kennedy was killed. Mm-hmm. And he didn't write it in the quiet of his room. He sat out in the uh, Napoleon uh cafe and um cafe napoleon in new orleans and ranted while he wrote he ranted about uh wanting kennedy assassinated and so i was uh it's a long story i don't think we have time for but someone uh introduced me to carrie in an extraordinary way and that's how i met carrie Mm-hmm. And so Carrie and I started to hang out, and Carrie is a very difficult person. He was diagnosed paranoid, schizophrenic, and uh, he was a genius, and he was very much involved in the conspiracy around the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. And what I learned from Carrie was about mind control. Okay, and you you hear the word, but that's where I started my journey into that subject was with Carrie Thornley. Carrie Thornley gave me the book Transformation of America uh, by Mark Phillips uh, and Kathy. What's her last name? Kathy O'Brien, I believe. Kathy O'Brien, and it was signed by both of them. And uh, so that was the first book I read that. It, 
that I really started my research with. Now, I want to uh, tell the public another thing about that. Those of you who know who Mark Phillips is probably don't know who Mark Phillips is. Okay, so here comes Carrie after I'd read the book and everything. And he says, hey, uh, Kathy's daughter is here in town in Atlanta. You want to meet her? And I was like, well, of course I do. So he took me over there and I spent the day with Kathy's daughter, Kelly. And the narrative of what went on with Kathy intimately involves Kelly, allegations of what happened to Kelly, both of them being sexually abused by government entities and uh, involved with mind control. Well, um, I spent more time with, with Kelly and Kelly uh, was being lied to. And Kelly had a photograph of Mark and her mom and her together. And she held this photograph to her breast and she kissed it. And she said, that's my daddy. He loves me. Here's the truth. She was living with an uh, OTO Magus and a prostitute. And the OTO Magus told me that Mark had come to him and said, take her, get her away from me. She's homicidal. Keep her away from me. Okay. Now, if if our listeners will care to go to YouTube and pull up the videotape, it's still there, of Mark and Kathy appearing at a, a conference called Granada or Grenada, whatever you want to call it. And they wind up their presentation by shilling for money so they could get Kelly out of the mind control hospital. They go on saying Kelly is in the hands of the evil government who has her incarcerated in a hospital. And we need your money to get her out. Wow. And they made that statement uh, the same year I was interviewing the girl. Mm-hmm. that Mark told to get him away from her because she was homicidal. You see, there's another little secret for you. So anyway, so I got into mind control via uh, 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 Carrie. Mm-hmm. And from that, I uh, interviewed a number of other subjects um, of United States government mind control and British mind control and Canadian mind control. Uh, government programs. Um, I was working with a filmmaker by the name of David Monaghan, who later uh, cheated me over the uh, Glenn Rogers killed OJ's wife story. So may he rest in hell. But at this time, I was working for him and he said, yeah, you're really doing a lot with that mind control stuff. Why don't we do a, a documentary? And so he funded me to go to a conference of mind control victims where I met and interviewed over a dozen on tape. Mm -hmm. And those interviews were transcribed to the tune of 88,000 words. And so uh, David Monaghan put together a proposal for documentary that was optioned by National Geographic, who held it for a year, and then said, well, uh, we're going to go in a different direction. (laughs) Ha ha, you know what that means. So they went in a different direction. So at that point, the research I did for David was given back to me. 
Okay, so I continued to research and investigate. During that uh, period, I interviewed Stephen Griggs. And he gave, sent me a box of documents that was so uh, eight inches high. That eight inches high of documents that he had compiled. And in reading through that, I couldn't shake it. I uh, I went a couple of years, just couldn't shake it. Finally, I got back to Stephen, and I'm like, you know what? I can't shake this. And so at that point, I started working with Stephen. For two years, I worked with Stephen, and then, and only then, excuse me, did I say two? I mean, three years. I worked with Stephen three years. Then he considered that he had vetted me to allow me to meet Diane, his sister, who became my co-author with Good Little Soldiers. Okay. So mm -hmm. the story that I publish is in Diane's words, through Diane's point of view, as a six-year-old child who's been sold into the United States uh, Army uh, program by his parents, signed by her parents, signed over. Both of the kids, Stephen and Diane, both were signed over by their parents and entered that program there at uh, Fort uh, Devons. Not Dietrich. Dietrich was the uh, poison research. This was different. Um, Devons. And uh, so that is the book. It's told in Diane's voice. Diane was multiple, uh, is still multiple personality. And uh, so that is reflected in the book. And the text of it is also, the language used is also in the persona of a six-year-old child. Because when I finished the book, I spent 10 years. And when I finally finished it, sent it to Diane, she had a big reaction. And it turns out that that child altar was still in there. I thought it had been absorbed. And she was integrated and everything was fine. But that child altar didn't know we were writing a book about her. And when Diane read it, it woke her up. And she came forth and she was like, I didn't agree to this. <laughs> okay. I've spent 13 years now. And I was pretty sure I, I knew what I was doing with right. Diane. And lo and behold, I'm still learning more. We still had to, we ran it through Diane, but we didn't run it through Annie. So I said, well, I'll just wait. You you deal with Annie and get back with me whenever you come to an arrangement. Whenever it's okay with Annie, we'll, we'll continue. And to put that in context for people, a lot of these ideas is that um, this trauma-based mind control stuff creates split personalities like it that's part of the technology a used to create an assassin someone mm. who will do something that against their moral training someone who can be persuaded through hypnosis drugs trauma electricity um x-rays uh mind fucking um psychological mind fucking uh tones oh here i'm gonna jump and interrupt myself back to mark phillips he told Kelly that she he didn't know her 
keys and tones yet. And that he needed $350,000 to buy equipment so he could find out her keys and tones. And so she said, you know, I'm just waiting, you know, for Mark to raise that money so he can use that equipment on me and find out my keys and tones. <laughs> that was to that was to induce something i'm assuming that to to access yeah, okay yeah. uh trauma as they did it in the lab these people were scientists and they were not like nazi scientists they were nazi scientists right. uh the united states government brought uh, the actual german scientists and many 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 people have said including mingala himself here to the United States to start our MK Ultra program. They were here just like Werner von Braun. They brought the rocket scientists and the mind scientists. And they talk about the rocket scientists. That's not so shameful. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. But when I when we talk about who were these people, they were brought here from Germany, from the Reich. And Carrie Thornley, who was a initially a conspiracy skeptic really came around to understanding this stuff because he thought he was in the middle of something like this. And he opened your mind to the possibility of things like this. Can I talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. There's a, a common phrase going around now where people use the word trigger, trigger. You're going to trigger me. And uh, they mean something very commonplace. They just mean you're going to upset me. Mm -hmm. okay? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's all they mean. But in the technology of mind control, when you use the word trigger, it is a very specific application of that term. And it actually makes things happen that you would not believe. Okay. So, Harry Thornley um, participated in uh, these... Uh, brainwashing sessions with someone that he thinks was E. Howard Hunt. He was introduced by a guy he knew as Slim Brooks. And then they would take him out in the country, Harahanna, Louisiana, and give him some ginseng weed tea and talk. This is uh, what's in uh, the story on my website, SandraLondon.com. Confession to Conspiracy to Assassinate JFK. So I'm laying the groundwork. So that's what happened, okay? And the last thing that this individual said to Carrie Thornley was, we're going to blow his head off, and we're going to frame some jailbird for it. Well, the thing about a technical mind control trigger is that it is a pat phrase. It is a like a magic spell. It's just as rigorous as it is in, in the ceremonial magic. You have to say it exactly that way. It's not a sentiment. It's not an idea. It's a series of sounds that you make. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Makes, makes total sense. Yeah. Do you understand that? That is the yep. difference. Mm -hmm. You're doing a real mind control trigger, as I'm going to explain, that I witnessed in the field, and what they are now calling triggers. Okay. So please let's re let's stay with the technical definition as I continue my explanation. So Carrie was told that, and then he went his merry way, and all of those memories were buried. And then there he lived in Atlanta years later, and there was a, a extraordinary situation where a 
party he was at was robbed by masked men with guns who took nothing but his ID. Okay. Very shortly after that, uh, Martin Luther King was killed, and there was a reportage about a conversation that was overheard regarding the assassination of Martin Luther King. And Kerry read this in the Atlanta Journal. And in the Atlanta Journal, it said, quote, unquote, we are going to blow, in other words, King's head off, just like we did the president, and we're going to frame some jailbird for it. And when Kerry read that, those words, just like that, it brought back the suppressed memories so as you started off, Sir Phil, saying that he didn't realize he had been mind controlled mm -hmm. when he was uh, uh, indicted by Jim Garrison, when he testified before the Warren Commission, he literally did not remember any of this. And after it was too late, after those things were adjudicated and those appearances were done, all of a sudden these memories came back with that trigger phrase. OK, now hold that thought, if you will. That's Carrie Thornley. Now, jump with me, if you will, to an interview with a high-level spook that uh, scared me to death. Okay, this was a person who had been mind-controlled uh, at the federal government law, uh, level to be an assassin and had committed an assassination. And he was a wreck. Okay, and the whole time I spent with him, he was emotionally incontinent and very disturbed. First, I'm going to tell you one thing, then I'm going to tell you about the trigger phrase. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you one other thing. I came in with a list of 300 questions, over 300 questions, about half of them consisted of someone's name. And I rattled off these names. I had three people with me to write down his responses, so I have it all transcribed. And... uh Rattling off all these names and many that he should have known, uh, he he didn't know. But when I said Slim Brooks, which is a street name, he had no hesitation at all. He said, that's E. Howard Hunt's bodyguard. Okay. Now, I reported that to someone who actually knew Slim Brooks in real life, and he said, that's not very realistic for him to be a bodyguard because he was a scrawny guy. And I said, well, maybe he meant that in the sense that he was like a conciliary or a, goat, a gatekeeper, mm -hmm. that he would guard access to him. Okay. I didn't have a chance to go back and question him any further because I had 300 other people to ask about. But that was a hit. Like a handler. No, no. A handler uh, manages someone under them. Okay. He, he would be a gatekeeper, a secretary, okay. a social secretary. Okay, you will. okay. Okay, to, to guide people to him, to prepare people for him. Okay. And, uh, and uh, he could function that way, and uh, someone could call that uh, a bodyguard. Yeah. You can't get to him unless you talk to Slim, right? You yeah. could call that. But that same person also confirmed that the word brother-in-law was commonly used in the underworld, uh, not to mean that someone was married to your sister. 
Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Uh, but to mean that there was a, you know, a, a criminal uh, type of family relation. Mm-hmm. It was in my brother-in-law, meaning that we are partners in crime type. That that's a common term. So let us turn back to the trigger. So there I am in my interview with this high-level spook. And it gets too intense, y'all. It just too much. And uh, we're fixing to wind up about 15 minutes. So I says to him, I says, uh, you know what? Let's knock it off. Let's not do this anymore. I'm tired. How about you? Yeah, I'm tired. Let's go over there to the, you know, the uh, bar and, and have a Coke. And so we're, we're debriefing. We're just cooling down after our intense sessions. And I'm just making small talk. And I'm like, you know, I have this friend that says language can be used in different ways besides what the words mean. And he says, yeah, it can. He says, what what do you mean? And I said, well, and I told him about Carrie and about the words we're going to frame some jailbird for it. Well, he was triggered, right? The entire 20 20 or something hours I'd spent with him, he had been a puddle of a person uh, physically, okay? Slumped and slovenly. He was emotionally incontinent. He, He was a mess. When I said those words, frame some jailbird for it honey he snapped to attention his spine straightened his head raised his chin raised he turned his head to me because i was sitting next to him like it was a snap swivel he went with his head like that right and he looked me in the eye and he said don't say another word Just like that. Honey, please. So that's another little look into the world of uh, mind control. And the way you know it's a program is because they use the same triggers. Right. Right. So they used uh, Wizard of Oz widely so that... uh, uh, as one mind control survivor told me, uh, and uh, the, this one example she gave me was uh, Alice, an Alice example, that yeah. anyone could get me to follow him if he would come in and say, I'm late, I'm late for a very important date. She said, but I wouldn't notice it unless he jangled his keys at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's what you call putting a lock on it. Putting a lock on it. Another mind control survivor came to me wanting to know how he was being triggered and asking me to hypnotize him. 
And I told him I'm not a hypnotist. Right, <laughs> I right. Don't hypnotize people. And uh, I won't hypnotize you, you know. But do you want to talk about this or anything? And so we talked and everything. And he, and, uh, he was, his query to me was he wanted to know how he was being triggered. So I didn't hypnotize him and we just hung out. But all of a sudden he said, Oh, geez, you know what? I think I better not say these words right now. Uh, let me just pull some words out of the hat here that are not actual triggers, because now we know they work on other people, mm-hmm. right? So just pretend he said, uh, put it in a hat, and that is that. Just pretend that's what he said. It is not what he said, mm-hmm. okay? So he said this little phrase, and I said, what's that? He said, that's how they're triggering me. Okay. And I said, what are they triggering you to do? And he said, go get training to be a helicopter pilot. And he did. He went and got training. He became a helicopter pilot. He bought a helicopter. He built a hangar on his ranch. He has uh, moving pictures and photographs of him flying that helicopter uh, out of his his ranch interesting and the the hangar he built okay uh this person i knew for many years he was sent in on me which he confessed after about eight years he was a network um uh cameraman network news cameraman and he met me because he was sending the photograph me when i uh, was interviewed for a current affair That was my first encounter with him. Then I had an encounter with him because he knew I had the tapes to the killing of Adam Walsh. And he wanted to arrange for me to get that on TV. And they entered back in my life. After that, he tried to get me to do incriminating things. And or things that were unflattering. Okay. And when his handler died, he came to me asking me to be his handler. I had known him for so many years before he told me the backstory. Many years. He said, look, here's what happened. I was nine years old. My mother's a, a, a neurosurgeon. My father's a police captain in New York City. And uh, they, I, I was unruly and I was a uh, uh, criminal. And so they offered my mother opportunities if she would put me in this program and they took him down and put him in columbia uh uh, psychiatric in the middle of new york city and he was there for three years okay and he kind of sparked a a a revolution among the patient because they were giving something they call number pills they didn't have names and he said i'm not taking those number pills anymore and the other and encouraged the other kids not to take them. And they put him in a cage in which he was kept in a cage for over a year. And he they lied to his parents. They lied to his father. So his father, the boy didn't want to see him, lied to the boy, said his parents didn't want to see them. The marriage broke up. The father found out. He came down and badged them at the facility and said, You give me my son. You give him to me right now. And they went and got him, and that's how he got out. His father in in uniform as a police captain. 
came there and demanded him be released. He was there for three years. And I just let him talk. I didn't ask him anything, I swear to God. He starts talking about Louis Julian West being in charge of that unit mm -hmm. and coming in on a supervisory level from time to time. This man uh, died mysteriously. He was driving in his car on air, on the CB, broadcasting, when he said, this motherfucker's trying to kill me, and then smash, and then radio silence. The guy that hit him head on was driving a station wagon, an old car station wagon, loaded behind the, the first seat with heavy equipment, heavy metal, pieces, big pieces of heavy metal. Junk, I don't know what. Nothing, not a product or anything. Just a bunch of heavy metal. Yeah. So he went flying into Bob uh, at a high speed, and that was his death. Can I ask about um, Diane and Stephen their experience because they were not only in this special program as depicted in the book at Fort Devens, but then both of their, their memories come out about their father being a serial killer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, the father, that's the other story. It's a generational thing. And uh, when the uh, BBC did a documentary on Diane and Stephen, and they only covered the homicidal father, and I talked to the filmmaker after I did my research and, and published my book. And uh, he told me uh, he wouldn't touch that MK Ultra stuff with a 10-foot pole. Mm -hmm. okay? So all the uh, work that Diane had done to document what she went through and everything, that was left on the cutting room floor. Because like Diane said, it's not a secret because we're trying to keep it secret. It's secret because they don't want to know. And you... Right. You've talked to us about these these shields that really serve to promote disbelief in people's stories when they come forward claiming that these things have happened to them. Can you talk about some of these shields? Because I think this really relates to a lot of different things and just researching any of this type of stuff. I'd like to say that we are at war and that this is an information war. And that if you're afraid of uh, Satanists and devils, then I'm sorry. But Michael Aquino wrote a book about it and he was in charge of psychological operations for the united states army okay so don't just go nuts because he ran around saying he was more satanic than the church of satan yeah 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 right you're a, a bird colonel with the united states army you wrote a book about psyops and you were in charge of psyops and so if you just read the book it will tell you from an official source that it is important for us to transition from physical warfare, hot warfare, to mind war. Mm -hmm. And this is in the past now. Yeah. This is, uh, Long time ago. That accomplished. Done. We've been in the era of mind war for decades already. Yeah. So uh, we still uh, in the public are not allowed to see what we're going through here as warfare. But it is warfare. And a big part of the warfare we're subjected to is linguistic warfare. 
One of the tools that they use to defeat us is to go in and swap the valence on terminology. And I'll use the simplest example in the world. When I was brought up in our whole body politic came up from infancy learning that when you were in trouble and you needed help, all you had to do was dial 911. Well, they swapped the balance on that, didn't they? Turn 911 into something to be hated and feared and then play the trauma over and over and say to us, like we need to be told, never forget, never forget, never forget what? being traumatized. And so you, you took a word like pride and you swapped the valence on it. You took a word like patriot and you swapped the valence on it. Okay? That's linguistic warfare. Okay? If you, before you can think about patriotism, you now have a switch installed in your mind that says whether you may or may not think that thought. Right? That is linguistic warfare. As a part of that, I analyzed three very common, what I call shields, and I say that they are weapons, and that this shows premeditation uh, uh, of heinous crimes, atro heinous, atrocious, and cruel crimes done premeditated, cold, and calculated. Now, what did those words I just recited mean? They meant the difference between a common homicide and a, a crime deserving execution. Mm. Now, if you want to look at what's being done to us as a people, democide, if you find those elements involved, that ratchets up the severity of what's being done to us. Because it is being done coldly very calculatedly and premeditatedly. Now, part of that premeditation is to put in place these shields that will operate all by themselves and they don't need any any special knowledge. They just work. Uh, one I, I discussed, we'll talk about, uh, is the shield of uh, mystification. Mystification is when the information about what's going on is so congested and so encrypted that it becomes an arduous ordeal to unpack what what the message is. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is a shield because who is going to do that? Okay, it just a few people. No, they're not. Well, if they do, good for them. They defeated the weapon. But the weapon operates statistically mm. across all yeah. parameters. Dumb, stupid, I don't care. It works. If it's mystifying enough. And the things that were used to threaten me and so forth, you would use abbreviations. You would call me Dorothy when you sent the exterminator to get rid of the rats in the basement. Okay, ask for Dorothy. That's Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. That's to let you know who sent this. Who sent this exterminator here? I don't have a basement, and I don't have any rats. 
And there's no one here named Dorothy. But that's a message, you see. And that's a threat. But for me to explain it, how long does it take? And then you hear me and you say, well, that doesn't prove anything. Right? That's a weapon to conceal wrongdoing. You do it in such a way that you wrap it in mysterious. What did that quote guy, he quoted, you know, it's an enigma wrapped in a mystery and so forth. That's the literal description of the, the shield of mystification. You make it so hard. And that's what they did with the Kennedy assassination, as this character explained to Carrie Thornley when he set it up in advance. He said, I'm going to go all over, talk to everyone who wants to kill Kennedy. And then when they start to unravel one thread, they'll think they've got it all. And they won't even look at the other threads. Okay, that's fascinating. I never thought of that. Wow. The next shield is repugnance where you wrap the incident that the victim hoped they could report in repugnant elements that are repugnant, that I don't even want to cross my lips, even to report how someone has violated me. I don't want to use those words. I don't want someone to see me saying those words. And that keeps so many people quiet. They just, you can't bring yourself to utter vile things so if you do things that are vile enough that's a shield against reportage yeah okay it's a shield against the victim reporting it and it's a shield against anyone believing it because they will suffer a stomach upset that will come between them and listening to this victim. And the first thing you do when you do that is get rid of that uh, stimulus, which is the victim's report. It's not the crime that was committed against the victim. It's the victim giving that report. That's what's got you aggravated. And that's what your body wants to stop. So you stop it before you even get to the part about, I didn't do anything. I'm trying to tell you who did. You don't get to that part because the body shuts down and repugnance of what you're talking about. A lot of people cannot stand the subject of child abuse. Child trafficking is too repugnant. They can't stand it. If you try to talk about it, they, they will shut it down. Okay, that's repugnance. Incredibility is the last of my three shields. And incredibility is when you wrap a phenomenon up in, in, in things that, if they are reported, will discredit the report. And the perfect example of that is uh, when you dope up some kids and then dress up your uh, agents in costumes and take those kids out to uh, whore them out, the kids come back saying that they were abducted by aliens. Okay. And that's incredible. So you, uh, oh, and uh, let me go back to uh, uh, Jolly West. There so many people up in a white rabbit costume. Mm-hmm. when he interacted with the mind control kids. Okay? That's incredibility. The child cannot come. 
and say, uh, a white rabbit told me to do this because it's incredible. Does the child know that's a doctor dressed up like a rabbit? How does the child know? That was Dr. West. I, I recognized his voice. He just says a white rabbit made me do it, see? And of course, that could work for like alleged satanic crimes too, right? Like people dressing up in witchcraft Absolutely. garb. And- that's a perfect example. Perfect example. But that uh, attitude of skepticism was one that was promoted by the usual suspects. Because we know how well we know that satanic beliefs and other beliefs of the same nature have been with us since caveman days, so shut up. Those things are real. When you want to talk about Satanism, I have friends who are Satanists. I have friends who are Christians, friends who are Catholics, friends who are Jews, even friends who are Muslims and atheists, and you name it. And it's none of my business. So long as they keep their thing to themselves and leave me out of it, that's fine. And we get along fine. I don't care. Amen to that. But let's talk about something else. Let's talk about what I call spooks and devil masks. Okay? These are not Satanists. These are government operatives, just like Michael Aquino, who's on salary for the United States government to run around uh, raising the flag of Satan. See who salutes, take their names, and follow them. See how they can be used. Are they easily influenced? Another mind control pro, and now these guys learn to be programmers in the service. Then they get out and they know how to do it. So they do it themselves for their own selfish reasons. This other guy I know about uh, did this. He would carry his trunk and his car full of um, regalia uh, from Wizard of Oz, costumes and, and gimmicks about Wizard of Oz. He'd go to uh, just anywhere, uh, flea market or anything, and he'd pull those things out. And when someone was interested, he would run triggers on them. And if their eyes blinked, he had himself a new mind control dolly. I think it's important you're pointing out that this isn't all just government now that, you know, it might have been the origin, but there's a lot of private actors and there's the revolving door of, you know, there's this whole world that doesn't even... There's a big gray area between private and military now, especially. They started, so what we're talking about was the United States government programs. Initially. Mind control itself are techniques, and they can be used privately. They can be used one-on-one. They can be used in families, and they are. They are always used in cults. Uh, They're not exclusive to the uh, military application at all. And the fact that the way our, our military services run, uh, only a few few of them are career. So they go in, they come out. And they're criminals in the first place, so they're going to put this to criminal use. And then they're very, very uh, helpful to organize crime because they can manage operatives. And this is the same kind of management that you find in freelance managers that handle people like uh, Tiger Woods or Beyonce. Performance, people whose performance is worth a lot of money have handlers to keep them tuned up. 
And uh, it's not the same kind of United States government training to be an assassin, but it employs the same set of techniques in another context. That makes perfect sense. You look into the guy's background that uh, Tiger Woods' father hired. Mm -hmm. Tiger Woods' father was black ops himself. But he hired a special black ops colleague of his to train the boy. Hmm. From, you know, infancy, basically. To get that high performance. Mind control. Uh, We're talking about uh, you controlling my mind, but the other aspect is me learning to control my own mind. And Mm -hmm. that was when Diane had a a moment with Stephen out in the field where their father was trying to kill them, and they escaped him, and they were huddling together, and they were like, uh, you know, and the conversation went uh, uh, where Diane said the program, it wasn't all bad. And Stephen said, what do you mean? And she said, we knew to zigzag when we ran. Yeah, I felt like, you know, that there was an interesting thing going on there where I almost felt like that the way that it's portrayed in the book that they were recruited because their father was such a homicidal maniac. Sure. But no, he was he was part of the same program. Right. But he was being sent on black bag jobs. That program allowed them to resist him, ultimately. Oh, well, Stephen did. Yeah. Uh, Because here's another thing I'd like to point out. I told you about Carrie Thornley, and I told you about another individual at the same level uh, in that assassination game. And these two people had very, very different innate personalities, and I submit that that's as much a part of you as your DNA. And uh, Carrie Thornley was uh, um, uh, very, uh, what can I say? Uh, He would uh, resist any kind of manipulation, okay? If, if, If there was something put to him, he would take the other side, okay? And that was just built into him. Kind of a contrarian. Okay, he was a contrarian at heart. And just into the small things and the big things. And that's one thing I learned working with serial killers. Everything's not about murder. You can see something about someone from small things, too. So uh, that contrarian nature is through and through, through and through. And the other person was a pleaser through and through. A pleaser. So really, essentially, all you had to do was just give him a slight hint what you wanted him to do. And he'd be rushed, falling over himself to do it. Whereas Carrie, you could be trying the exact same program, exact same prompts, and it just wouldn't work because he's a different personality. But yeah. you can't really find out how far you can go with someone until you reach that point. Can you make them kill is the real point. Right. What does it take to make you kill? Okay, and so then uh, you you wind up with Carrie being what I call roadkill on the MK Highway. This was where our government went in and messed with people experimentally and then walked off and left them like the Unabomber. There was no debriefing. They just stopped. 
And then they left these people disturbed. And to work out this disturbance that was that was forced upon them in, in whatever way they could. That's why they're roadkill. They are not assassins. They're people who have been messed up by trying to make them be assassins. And uh, and uh, Ted Kaczynski went to great lengths to try to explain this to the world, why he wasn't going along with this. He gave us the long version, but then, of course, he did kill. Mm-hmm. Well, this so is back to Diane, back to yeah, Diane. Okay. In one of our very recent long conversations where I was kind of wondering her thoughts on why these mind control techniques were so effective. Why did they work? And again, you know, two hours later, <laughs> we boil it all down to uh, they were careful about selecting their targets. So back to the story of good little soldiers, when dad was signing Stephen and Diane into the program, they said, okay, we want these. And then dad piped up, greedy dad piped up. I've got four other kids. Think we can get them in the program too? And they said, no, only these two are qualified. Okay. So they would take people that they, they have reason to believe meet the initial criteria. Then they take them in the lab and they process them and they do all kinds of things to them. And does it take or does it not take? So when Diane and Stephen were uh, asked or allowed to leave the program, my chapter is called We Did Not Fail. Because that's what they were told by the doctor when they know you did not fail. We just come to the end of, of your participation in the program. Now, Stephen wrote a lot of things for me that I own that I have not published. I talk to Stephen all the time on the phone. He has incredible stories. Um, but Stephen is so programmed that he's very difficult to work with. And there's one basic program that's always put in. And I, I call it Talk, Don't Talk. So whenever the person talks, the program's activated. Whenever the person thinks they might want to talk, the program is activated. So it begins to create behavior that uh, destroys the good effects of all the work you've done. And I ran into that with Stephen time and time again, and I had to explain it to him. You know, I mean, uh, I understand why you're doing this. But I can't tolerate it. You know, you I can't let you abuse me just because we're getting somewhere with our work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's utterly out of his control. It's programmed behavior meant to keep the secret secret. Yeah. And so you'll find that. And I found that with Schaefer. I'm not saying he was programmed, but I found that kind of a... Uh, as soon as I would start to get somewhere, the person would sabotage it. And then later I learned that was part of a, a programming uh, protocol. Have you found any evidence or did you have any inkling that any of these serial killers had these kind of backgrounds? Absolutely. Of course, yeah. We've talked about that uh, that book, uh, Program to Kill, by 
Dave McGowan, where yeah. he kind of puts that forward. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty famous one. My purse, I like to stick to my personal research. Yeah. And uh, that would involve the process church. And the process church has been clocked uh, on Son of Sam, has been clocked on on Manson. And for my own personal research, uh, detailed information was given to me about the process church indoctrination of uh, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. Really? Wow. Tool knew the address of the headquarters in Louisiana, and he explained the philosophy that was taught. Okay, so um, that is one that I know of personally. Wow. One method for uh, for training, conditioning, um, uh, indoctrinating people who have been identified as being useful uh, in that domain. Yeah, obviously where all this stuff comes from is the Manchurian candidate type of stuff. And even before that, I guess back to the assassins, the same kind of idea was creating killers. The Sicarii. To to tie it back to where we started, a Sicarius. What is a Sicarius, Danny Rowling? Tell us. It goes back to Jewish history when they had the Masada and the uh, Romans took over the Jews, right? And so the Jews were a captive people. And so a lot of the Jews fought back and they would fight the Romans. But the Sicarii were the first cloak and dagger. They wore a cloak and they carried a dagger, a sika. The word sika is the knife in a cloak and go in the crowded marketplace, sneak up to the betrayers among their own people, the collaborators, mm-hmm. stab the hell out of them and then throw their hands up and scream and be scared and run with everyone else. That's what a sicarius is. Okay, yeah. Okay, so that goes back. The word Sika is uh, trans. It's many languages throughout Indo-European. So primitive. Mm-hmm. So if you were to Google uh, for a picture of Sika, you would find items from all over the world that look different, but they call them Sika. That's a scary. It's nightmare. Well, thanks for elaborating on that, because I I was wondering what your thoughts on that would be, because these are real, these things are definitely crossing over. Uh, Could you clear that up? What things are crossing over what? Uh, Serial killers and mind control. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? Uh, I'm going to give you another secret, Uh, just because you're nice. Do you know who Maury Terry is? Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Maury Terry wrote the book, The Ultimate Evil, in which he spent 20 years uh, analyzing the connections behind the Son of Sam killings and then how they reached all over the country to other cases, including Manson. That's it in a nutshell. Well, Maury Terry put me under contract when I was going to the Danny Rowling murder trial and everybody was surrounding me with requests to speak. I was ordered to say no comment because I was under contract to Maury Terry. Okay. Maury Terry did nothing for me, but um, come between me and the editors who credentialed me to uh, go to that trial. And uh, when they expected me to file a story, he wouldn't let me. 
Okay, eventually, uh, six months later, when the news cycle was dead, he allowed me to do a story for which I got paid $4,000 that was given to Maury Terry. And after two months, he sent me $700. And while I was under contract to Maury Terry, we were in conversation every single day, and he knew that I was working with Danny Rowling, obviously. And he came to me one day and said, my uh, underworld sources tell me Danny Rowling was sent to Gainesville to commit mayhem. I said, what? What sources? What are you talking about? What do you mean? Nobody sent him. He wasn't in any cult. He said, I'm just telling you. He says, I don't know. That's what I was told. Okay. So I went right straight to Danny Rowling and I says, Maury Terry says you were sent. And Danny Rowling got highly aroused and angry and denied being sent. Mm -hmm. And I will agree with Danny Rowling and the prosecution and the defense and all of those other crappy books that were written about him, that Danny Rowling was a loner, that he had no partner, he didn't belong to any cult. There was no one behind him. No one ever told him to do anything. When confronted about this, Danny Rowling said, no one ever told me to do anything but Gemini. What was Gemini? Gemini was a voice Danny Rowling heard inside his head. Honey, okay. please. Voice to skull technology was patented in 1974. So just stop. Just stop. Okay. And I will say one more thing on that line. Danny Rowling was hypnotized. Okay. The defense called in a hypnotist who hypnotized him. And I have his letter written after the hypnosis. He was hypnotized. Okay. In the Siron Siron case, another uh, mind control case, after it was settled, a new defense came in and did new research. And the book was written in which it was reported in that context that a schizophrenic cannot be hypnotized. Therefore, if your suspect is hypnotized, it rules out schizophrenia. Okay. Gotcha. You got me? Gotcha. Yep. He may have thought he was hearing voices, but it could have been external. It was on a bus. Yeah. And there was a character up in uh, in Canada who heard a voice on a bus and jumped up and decapitated. Uh, yeah. And cannibalized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In a robotic manner and did not know what he was doing. So you can't close these cases. All right. You can't prove anything. And if you did, what good would it do you? Do you know what it would do? If you did, it would cause a lot of trouble for you, my friend. Trouble that you could never connect to anything. Deals wouldn't work out and your car wouldn't start. Things that have absolutely nothing to do with anything, right? Right. Until some off-the-wall crazy person pops up and drops a message into his raving that he has no business knowing anything about. Okay? And that puts the lock on it. 
Mm-hmm. Wow, Sandra, this has been uh, this has been amazing. Um, I'm I see so you happy. both heads just spinning. I see your heads uh, yeah, we're, we're our heads are definitely spinning. We're just trying you to figure out the, both the, of the, you. the next thing to process, say. Yeah. I would ask you this about uh, about the book. Has anyone taken them seriously, Stephen and Diane, and looked to see? If people, oh, no, that documentary had disappeared was very or... successful in, in discrediting them, yeah. although if you actually watch it, it doesn't discredit them. But they managed to put a picture of Diane with the little uh, wires coming out of her head, and, and then they hire some person who's never met Diane who says, uh, people like this are making stuff up because they can't face the fact that their father was bad, so they make up all this other stuff. And that person never saw Diane. But they managed to wind it up with that put on top of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just that, curious. That makes if... it a limited hangout and it gives the documentary filmmaker an exit. Yeah, mm-hmm. I haven't watched the documentary, but I I'm 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 going to because I'm real curious. But oh, oh, I'm sorry, but it's emotionally uh strenuous. Yeah. And I want to tell you what he did. He he put Diane through an ordeal. Um, when you have been through trauma, um, if you go into therapy or any situation or testimony or anything else where you have to go over it, uh, that re-traumatizes you, uh, and you are, uh, in an altered state, uh, which is identical physiologically to what you went through when the trauma occurred. So this filmmaker took Diane and put her through the worst trauma she ever experienced on camera. And she completely breaks down on camera. And what she told me after years, she brought herself to be able to tell me that uh, the film ran out. And he said to her, could you do that again? Mm. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He's and a he shit. hurt. He caused so much damage through the sharing of information by handling her that way. I've been so uh, conscientious. I've taken responsibility, Diane. No one will ever interview you again. They can interview me. Yeah. They're not going to enter. They're not getting their hands on you again. Okay. And that was what I promised, Diane. If Diane wants to feel like she wants to come forward and assert herself, she's free to. But people who want to get their hands on Diane will will come deal with me. That was horrible. Yeah. And that's that's why it took three years for Stephen to even let me talk to Diane, because he sat there and watched that. Right. He was standing there while they were doing that. Yeah, so that that documentary was made before they even went to talk to you, I, I suppose. Yeah. Wow. But Diane was like, I'm never talking to anyone again. You know, yeah. that was the end of that. Yeah. And so I had to be, I had to really surpass myself in being compassionate and patient. Seems like they were more concerned about getting their, getting their uh, material than anything Well, aren't else. they all? You know yeah. what they say? Oh, Reporters think people's just a story with the skin wrapped around it. Yeah, that's true. Well, um, that's a lot about the mind control stuff. I hope um, so. Yeah, that's, I think that, that that's... That ought to hold you for a while. 
That's really great. Um, before we wrap everything up, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about the your True Vampires book and this other uh, subject of interesting people who no. you researched? No? Okay. That's I'd totally like to fun. talk about Discordianism. Yes. I, th- I thought you were interested in Discordianism. I am. I am. I was very interested in uh, you know all the story behind uh, Thornley, but um, I mean, you have that direct connection and yes. Discordian lineage, exe- you know, straight from the source and the founder. That's right. So, what and can you what, is, what can you tell us? Then, I, again, I told you that no one's ever done the things I've done. There has never been anyone put on the a witness stand to describe Discordianism. For the benefit of the court and to have it filmed by court TV. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. I saw that. That was great. Yeah. Okay. It is just crazy. You know what? I'm not a lawyer, but I know the practice of law 101. You never ask a question of a witness that you don't know the answer. And that fool got up there and he asked me so many stupid questions. I couldn't believe it. I said to him, Are you sure you want to take the court's time? For me to talk about Greek mythology? Yes, go ahead. Like he knew what he was doing. I said, I'm a Discordian. And he says, uh, what kind of history do you write? And I said, excuse me? He says, you said you're a historian, didn't you? I said, no. I'm not a historian. I'm a Discordian. Well, what does that mean? Right? So I I must say that my position in Discordia is unique. And I I defy anyone to uh, contest me on that. (laughs) What is Discordianism? Well, it came from uh, a little uh, item that was produced by Carrie Thornley and Greg Hill back in the 50s. And it was runoff on the... uh, what do you call that? That uh, purple kind of printing that you were carbon on? carbon no. copy or something like that? No, 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 purple. It's purple, and it had a jelly. That you're too young. <laughs> Sorry, I know what it is. Rocks. I've it handled that. Xeroxes. Yeah, and it was purple, and it had a jelly that you put it on. So that was how it was produced, and that. Uh, that a machine or whatever was in the office uh, of um, uh, Jim Garrison. It was Jim Garrison's secretary who printed the original Principia Discordia. Mm-hmm. So what is it? It, it? It's silly. It's foolish. It's nonsense. It's funny. It's based on Greek mythology uh, that the um, Greeks uh, called the goddess uh, uh, Eris and the Romans called her Discordia. And they are two different groups of people in two different languages. And the only people that call her Eris Discordia are modern Discordians, per Carrie Thornley. Okay. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's an art movement, uh, more like a surrealism uh, or the, uh, the symbolists. Um, and some of these groups uh, that uh, dealt with... Uh, well, chaos. It's about chaos. Oh, excuse me. I forgot to mention chaos. <laughs> Discordia was the goddess of chaos, and she was the first entity that proceeded from the brain of Zeus. Not mm-hmm. Zeus. From the uh, the brain of chaos itself. She was before Zeus. The first living entity that materialized from chaos itself was Eris Discordia. 
according to the the, the myths. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what did she do? Long story, but she threw the apple into the party, and the apple was marked for the prettiest one. So what that did was set everyone else fighting over it. What did that mean? I'm the prettiest one, so it's my apple. No, I'm the prettiest one. It's my apple. And that caused uh, the Trojan War. Okay, that's the very short version. All right, in tying together history, mythology, and the modern uh, art movement of Discordianism. So when they put me on the stand and everything else, and they said I didn't explain what I was doing and everything, and nobody, you know, I was bad and everything, you know, and my work was stupid and everything, deserved to be shut up and everything. And so I explained, and then he says, now how does that explain why you put all this stuff on the Internet? I said, it doesn't. I said, much like Eris Discordia, I'm quoting myself, (laughs) I tossed the provocative item into the fray to let the name brand artist argue over it. And in a way, yes, that's what I've done. So the spirit of Eris Discordia is real. It's often portrayed as being a, a, you know, mock religion, they call it. But I think that they really stumbled on something that's a lot more than that. And, you know, especially the religion is this, it makes a mockery of the forms and the formality find in religion. It will also make mockery of the forms and formality find in business. For example, it doesn't mean it's a religion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nevertheless, there are discordians who would disown me for, for saying that because they say it's a religion. And uh, there are discordian. There are people who believe that uh, uh, discordianism is some kind of government uh, subversion, uh, something very serious that has to do with assassinations and and commies and stuff. And uh, that's not my opinion. And they're welcome to take it that way. So if I put out a work of art, you can interpret it any way you want. And I'm not right, and you're wrong. Right. So people who see it that way are not wrong. I'm just saying that's not how I see it. I see it as an art movement. And your absurdity and fun, having fun. And uh, Carrie Thornley had written something about people arguing about whether something was properly discordian or not. And he's just like, arguing is not discordian you know and it's either if it's funny you know it's discordian you know if it's not funny it's not you know it's lighthearted. and you are a direct link to i am to carrie thornley and -hmm. that's why carrie was so close to me he didn't convert me or influence me i was there already i was a force of nature of my own and so that's why I was admitted to, to his presence as an equal, not as an acolyte. And also, I was his producer. So, uh, you know, I, I guided him and protected him and helped him to refine his message and dress. And when I first I did a couple of pre-interviews and uh, he smoked a lot of pot. And he waving his hands all around and jumping and just his subjects going wild and everything. Now we got that. Now let's do it without smoking pot. 
and uh, get a little, boil it down a little bit more, you know, give it to be a little bit more digestible. Is that why there's like multiple versions of interviews with them? It looks like pre-interviews. Okay, cool. For me to submit to a current affair. Right. Because you got him on a current affair. Yeah. And that's how by doing the pre-interviews. Right. Okay. Okay. It all makes sense now. The, the the machine you were thinking of is a mimeograph. It is. It is a mimeograph. Yeah. What did you search? I just I just Purple searched like jelly copies. <laughs> I just searched like before uh before Xerox machines and yeah. it popped up with it said what do people use for Xerox machines and popped Purple. up mimeographs. Yeah. Had a smell. Yeah. Every, I, every school smelled like it. The papers smelled. Yeah, I've seen like old papers that my dad and my mom did when they were in college in the six in the seventies, and they that's what that is the purple thing, and it fades in time. The the contract I had written with uh, Maury Perry is no longer visible. (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) Yeah, you can see some few faint scratches, but you can't make out what it says. Um, what was the the aftermath of him? Uh, getting on a current affair. Well, he thinks that that's why I had so much trouble. He thinks that putting him on a current affair brought that on, brought all the stalking and the, and the uh, you know, well, I don't want to go into that, yeah. but uh, yeah. I suffered quite a lot. Um, and uh, Carrie felt kind of um, guilty uh, for bringing that on to me. And what years, what year was that? Uh, 1991. 91, okay. Was that because of the JFK movie? No. No. Just because I was doing stories for Current Affair, and I met Carrie, and I said, I've got this story. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Because I know that was a big, there was a big upswell in interest because of the JFK movie then. Let me tell you an anecdote from that. Uh, Where the guy came to pick Carrie up, the producer, for uh, uh, Oliver Stone working on that movie. He came to pick Carrie up at the airport. Wait, Carrie met him at the airport, okay? And the guy got off the plane. He's like, wow, this story is just wild. He says, everybody I've met for uh, to interview with this case is crazy as hell. And Carrie said to him, well, I'm diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, so I hope that helps. <laughs> Did he scare him off? Nice. I attended. I took Carrie to see that movie. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah. He talked throughout it. <laughs> what What did he think of it? What did he think of it? He thought that the characterizations were very accurate. Yeah. The people that he met in New Orleans, uh, David Ferry and uh, Clay Shaw. Uh, I don't think Bannister was in that movie. He was. Uh, that was Ed Asner's. Part. Okay, I forgot yeah. that part. Yeah. But uh, Bannister is the one who first contacted him. But at any rate, he kept, you know, saying, "Oh yes, that's just like him." You know, that's just like him. Oh wow, that had to be something to sit there and, and just listen to that. Um, that would that's like that's like having your own audio commentary of someone it, that was it, actually it's there. Quite extraordinary. Yeah. Yes, that had to be something. Wow. 
If, I when imagine. I have to look back at all the trouble I've had trying to do this stuff, I, I had to pick out, you know, bright moments to say. Yeah, absolutely. Aside. Yeah. And yeah. certainly attending JFK with Carrie Thornley is one of those bright moments. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Well, Sandra, I really want to thank you for coming on. This has been an amazing talk. I think and we went over. We yeah, did. That's totally we did. fine. We're like we're we're at about a couple hours right now. Oh no! That's okay. I let you have a couple of hours. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very you much. You tricked me. You guys are some kind of subversive mind controllers. You, you were you were on a roll. Uh, you had me in a hypno trance. <laughs> where can people find the website? Where can people find where your books are sold? Okay, please navigate to my website, which is my name, SandraLondon.com. Excellent. And when you get there, you will come to the stories. And in the stories, each one has links that you can hit to find those books. Otherwise, just go to Amazon. Okay. okay. But uh, it'd be better if you go to my website because then you can sample. I have a whole lot of excerpts there. And you, like you can the, really get a lot from just the website. The, like the, af- the afterward. The uh, that has a book to it has the link on that page. Excellent. Yeah, that should say the afterward to Good Little Soldiers is actually on the website as well, mm-hmm. right? The afterward, the good little soldiers, is where I explain those three weapons I talked about and where I talk a little generally about the history of mind control. So if anybody wants to know, you know, my thoughts on mind control, they're in that one uh, work, the afterward to good little soldiers. I wanted good little soldiers to be a story, not a lecture. Mm -hmm. And it is. It's just like um, Hansel and Gretel, the clever little girl and her brave little brother. Yeah, yeah. Their maniacal uh, uh, child-eating father Mm -hmm. and being driven from that into the even greater evil. And uh, how do they get out? How do they manage? How do they find their way? And that's the story in the book. It's a story. It's a very interesting book. Uh, read it, like I said, I finished it today. Um, thank you, Sandra, so much for coming on. We're thank you gonna... for inviting me, Adam and uh, Sir Phil. You yeah. have some thoughtful questions. I appreciated it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, stay on the live for us. We're going to close this section out. We'll come back. Uh, Sir Phil and I will to close out the show, and we'll be right back. We're not going to take up too much of you guys' time coming back here because that was a pretty epic show with Sandra London. Yeah, I am. Uh, I am really impressed by that. Um, there's just <laughs> it's a lot. To what unpack. can I say to unpack that at this moment? I can't really say that much, to be honest with you. That you haven't heard, but I mean, I, Sergio, you know, what did you think? I mean, this was that was a pretty incredible interview. I I, I kind of enjoyed how we just kind of let her talk and talk about her life and yeah. her experiences and uh you know it was even cool to get through like the into the discordian stuff at the end and about uh, her memories of carrie thornley which was yeah gr- a great thing i mean she's just a fascinating person has a fascinating life story and um it's really amazing how all these these topics cross over she's really a uh, as she likes to say a. uh unrepeatable person 
and uh, much maligned, you know, but we uh, gave her the chance to uh, tell her story from her perspective. Um, we are definitely anticipating getting some uh, shit for for this interview, but um, I think it was uh, definitely worth it to get all this information. Yeah, I agree. You know, anytime we're talking with somebody that has like a lifetime experience, which is something that Sandra has, I'm always interested in having them on. So think of this as a chronicle. Yeah. Someone uh, who has more, real... More than anything else. Real connection to countercultural icons, people like Carrie Thornley, people like Adam Parfrey, and someone who has such close proximity to all these uh, uh, serial killers and true crime Yeah, for people. real. That's um, a whole other... Yeah. That's a, that's a whole other thing, and I'm glad we got to talk about that tonight. That wasn't truly on the agenda because I was going to try to stick with just the book, um, which the book um, "Good Little Soldiers" is interesting. It is a I'm going to tell you right now, it is a rough read. It is not for the faint of heart, so it is not like a fun romp through the woods. Right, I'm just going to tell you that right now. It's full of murder and. Um, a lot of very adult themes. It's pretty rough. And I think no matter how, um, you know, rightly skeptical you may be about a lot of this stuff, um, her perspective and getting her point of view on this, this stuff really informs, uh, should inform everyone's own double takes at some of this, uh, the monarch mythos in general. Yeah. Just that it's more... It's more complex. All right. Uh, I think that's it for tonight, guys. I want to thank everybody for listening. It's Andre London for coming on. Uh, we got some great things um, coming up coming up in the pike. Scheduling shows for next month. I've already, we're going to be taking, a th- uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think we're taking a two-week break. Um, but we are physically, but not probably for the show. But uh We'll be back. I've got Dr. Richard Gallagher coming on to talk about demonic possession. He's a psychologist, and I think that's going to be a really interesting show. Wow. After that, we're going to try to schedule schedule some more. So just uh, if you guys want to support us, help us out. There is always the Patreon, and Sergio can tell you where to find that. You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal, where you can join the International Association of Conspiranormalists. The Mystic Crew or the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities that are in different pledge levels. Uh, you get access to uh, different things, including an archive now of both Patreon episodes and video uh, presentations at our Strange Realities monthly meetups that we're going to be resuming soon. Um, stay tuned for that, as well as announcements about uh, the Strange Realities conference this year. Okay, guys, I want to thank you so much for listening and catch you next time on It's Paranormal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.